You are listening to the Center Church Podcast. Center Church is an unapologetic urban church in the heart of Richmond for the heart of Richmond. Our mission is simple, to empower people towards a life-giving journey with Jesus. Enjoy the podcast. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? That was so lame. How's everybody doing today? Yeah, school starts tomorrow. Parents, can I get an amen? Kids, can I get a dull groan of sadness? I get it. I get it. Hey, listen, speaking of kids, we want to send our children, our VIPs, our young friends out of the room to go hang out uh, with Casey in the back. Casey, can you raise and wave your hand? Thank you so much. All you kids, get on out of here. Oh my gosh, we love you. You're the best. Let's give our kids a hand as they walk out. Oh my gosh, we're so grateful. And if you're standing in the back, yeah, come on forward. Uh, I see Alan Chipman just celebrated a birthday on Friday. Um, glad you're here today. Uh, listen, my name is Stephen Poor, and I'm one of the pastors on staff, a part of this community. And I am so honored today to introduce to you today the very last installment of our Voices series. Has it not been incredible to hear so many amazing speakers? Yeah. We have one more left for you. Um, Her name is Pastor Reverend Sabrina Chan. Uh, She's actually a Richmond native. Uh, She's from Richmond, Virginia, went off to Rice to become an owl, studied her undergraduate there, and then went to Fuller um, to get her MAT, which is a master's Uh, of arts and theology. And um, she is unbelievable. Uh, She's on staff as a director uh, with InterVarsity uh, of Asian American Life. And she's recently uh, co-authored a book that she has available today, um, which we are going to learn more about in a little bit. Um, Those are available in the back, and she is absolutely incredible, and she has a word for us today. Um, Would you all please welcome Sabrina Chan. Thanks, Sabrina. I'm so glad you're here. Glad to be here. Thanks. I'm going to slide this up here. It's good to be with y'all. We just recently, well, I'll talk about that in a second. I got to put up a picture of the, if you can do the book slide, um, because I just wanted to show y'all my co-authors. We wrote in community, four of us together, and I just kind of want you to have this picture in mind, one, because you can see my face in the picture, but also uh, because Asian America is really diverse. And I just, like, so this is just a small representation of um, Asian America, obviously. Um, My co-authors here are Filipino, Hmong, I'm Chinese American, and Indian American. But, of course, Asian America includes transracial adoptees, mixed folks, um, people of many different ethnic, over, like, 25 backgrounds. Um, So I just want y'all to have that in mind. Um, And, yeah, we wrote a book. It releases on Tuesday, which is kind of crazy, but exciting, and so you're kind of catching me in this space. But um, yeah, you can go to the next slide. This is my family. Just wanted to give you a little context. We just moved to Richmond, like at the end of June, um, but I did grow up here, and uh, yeah, we moved back. Well, this is us. We're bike commuting family, so if you see us riding around in bikes, that's pretty much our natural habitat a little bit, um, but we moved, you can go next slide, we moved partly because my extended family all lives here. The center of gravity has always been Richmond, despite me trying to move 
invite folks to move to California. I live in California. Kevin and I lived in California for a long time. Tried to get people to move. It was like too expensive. And, you know, my parents have lived in Richmond for 44 years. So, you know, they're like, we're not moving. So this is our extended family last year um, at the Outer Banks. Um, but that's basically the reason we moved back to Richmond. Uh, like Stephen said, I went to Texas. I tried to go as far away as I could after high school. That was as far as my parents would let me go, um, was Houston. I went to Austin. I was an engineer for a couple of years, was in Austin for a few years, was in the Bay Area, well, Austin for nine, Bay Area for 10. Durham, we moved back to Durham. We moved close, but not too close for like three-ish years, like a year before the pandemic. And then the pandemic, I think, changed a lot of things for a lot of people. And so it was like, well, I think we're ready to be close. Close, close. So we've been close, close for a little bit, and it's been fun. So that's just a little bit about me. Um, and uh, yeah, I, just this morning you heard, um, yeah, a little bit, uh, a little, the section from Genesis, six, Genesis 16. Thank you, Jocelyn, for reading that. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, we're going to look at Hagar's interaction with God this morning, and also at Sarai and Abram's actions. So their story is found in Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. Um, I just had them read Genesis 16. I'll tell you what happens in 21 um, if you're not as familiar. Um, but yeah, looking at the passage this morning, listening to the passage where I heard somebody say awkward, right, in the middle there, yeah, it, it is an awkward passage, right, especially looking at it from a 21st century lens, right, it's like a Western lens, it's like, oh, this is, this is kind of crazy, right, um, we're looking at, Hagar is an enslaved person, She's three times an outsider, enslaved person, an ethnic outsider. The passage tells us she's Egyptian, and she's a woman. She's an enslaved woman in a time when women were property as well, basically, right? An Egyptian whom we know who are enemies of the soon-to-be people of Israel. She belongs to Sarai, Abram's wife. Sarai suffers from infertility, right? A very painful and difficult thing today and even more so in the ancient Near East, right? In the ancient Near East, that was like the one thing a woman could do um, that could get, earn her some status in some ways. Today in the West, we tend to measure ourselves by our productivity of a different sort sometimes, how busy or how much we got done. Um, can you imagine being unproductive in the only way that was really recognized in ancient Near East culture? So Sarai offers Hagar to Abram in what at that time was considered a solution to her infertility forced surrogacy, right, without the IVF part. So like I said, this is from the lens of 21st century West. It's like, whoa, this is crazy. And it is. There's a lot of injustice. Um, she may have had second wife status. It's not entirely clear. Um, but regardless, Hagar's son would be called Sarai's son since she was the first, since Sarai was the first wife. Um, ancient Near East society, like ours today, has many things that are unjust. So just giving you the context. Um, Hagar gets pregnant. You heard in the passage, she looks on Sarai with contempt. You know, maybe it was because she's now pregnant and, and, um, and has a little bit of higher status. Um, maybe it's because she's been forced into pregnancy and motherhood because of her, right? Pregnancy is no cakewalk. Um, Sarai treats her poorly. Abram lets her. They never call her by her name. She's an object, right? Um, so Hagar flees into the wilderness, pregnant and alone. She is invisible to Abram and Sarai, merely useful for her ability to get pregnant and have a son. 
Um, she's incredibly vulnerable <laughs> as she flees, right? You know, they, when you're pregnant, they tell you how much water you're supposed to drink all the time because, like, dehydration and da -da. so. Um, so she must be really desperate to flee. Um, the passage tells us that the angel of the Lord finds her by a stream and calls her by her name. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? The messenger of the Lord wants to know her story, wants to hear, wants to give her a chance to, to use her voice, um, treats her as a subject, not an object. In that whole interaction, uh, God tells her that she will have so many descendants, which echoes what God had told Abram just a few chapters earlier. Um, she sa he says, you'll name your son Ishmael, and Ishmael means God hears. Um, Hagar hears from God. She recognizes that it's so significant to hear from God and still live. Hagar, Hagar, sees that, Hagar hears that God names her, calls her by name. And in return, she names God. She's the first person in scripture to name God, um, an outsider, a woman, an enslaved woman. So it's not, it's not Abram, it's not Sarah, um, who have each already had their own interactions with God. It's Hagar who gets to name God first. And she names him El Roy, which means the God who sees, right? the God who sees her. Um, she knows that God sees her, sees her afflictions, knows her name, right? knows what has been going on um, in her story, in her life. And so she names the well there, Ber Lahai Roy, the God who sees me. God saw her in her desperation. God valued her. She was not invisible to God, not an object to be used, but a person whom God valued. So womanist theologians have given the capital C church a really important understanding of this passage. So womanist theology coming out of the black church from the perspective of um, descendants of uh, black slaves, enslaved people in uh, the United States. So Dolores Williams, Renita Weems, I owe a lot of, I've been doing a lot of reading in, the, in that area. Um, I draw from their work, but also from one of my professors, um, Dr. Lai Ling Nan is a, professor in Waco, Texas, which is like, well, anyway. Before Waco got, Waco's like cooler now than it used to be. So I took classes from Dr. Nan when Waco was more like, you know, Branch Davidian was, <laughs> was more of the thing, right? So it's been a while. Um, but she first helped me think more about this from the Asian American perspective in, in an article in a, in a book. Um, so just to give you the, a little bit of context. So yeah, I grew up here, um, late 70s, early 80s. Um, there are more Asian Americans here now than there were back then, um, which is great. I'm grateful. Um, but it, it, was, it was pretty bad. Um, it, I, I described to people, especially like having lived in the Bay Area, they're like, yeah, can you help me understand? I was like, oh, yeah, if we were at the mall and you saw another Asian family, you either knew them already or you would go say hi and introduce yourself because, like, just surprising, right? Um, and... I grew up never feeling like I saw people who looked like me, right? Teachers, media, church. We went to a mostly white church then. There was a small Chinese church in town um, and all those things. So things have changed in a good way and we have a long way to go. So we flew Southwest coming home from the Bay Area last weekend and I was marveling because, you know, they do the like um, 
you can do the like, uh, ah, entertainment on your phone thing. And t the two of the new movies that they had were um, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I highly recommend, and Turning Red, which is like an animated um, Asian-Canadian film. Out of the four, two out of the four new things they had, and I was like, whoa, this is a different world, you know? Like, and I'm grateful, right, um, to see some representation. Um, and that's some of what this passage um, speaks to Asian Americans, is being seen. Right, in some ways, um, Asian Americans are very visible as foreigners. Like, I was really visible in my elementary school class. I was the only non-white kid in our class. Me and my sister were some of the only non-white kids in the whole school. Um, so there's a visibility of, like, otherness that Hagar is also in this passage. Like, they emphasize it a lot. Um, in, in Richmond, too, at the time, right, there's black, white, binary, and Asian Americans and Latinos not really mentioned, Native Americans not even in the picture maybe. Um, so that's, there's an invisibility to Asian Americans. Um, and there's a way that um, white supremacy, I, I hope I can use that term here, white supremacy, institutional racism, white normativity, whatever you want to call it, um, sees Asian Americans as two things. So I'm just gonna give you a quick little primer here. Uh, perpetual foreigner, which is the idea that um, no matter how long Asian Americans have been here, now we're up to like seven, maybe eight generations, some of the earliest Asian Americans, we're always seen as foreign. Um, so easiest example recently would be the pandemic and some of the things that were said and done and the hate um, and the violence, right? But that's not new, right? So post 9-11, the South Asian, communi South Asian community um, was labeled terrorists, right? facing a lot of um, hate crimes then. Um, Vincent Chin in 1987 was killed in Michigan because people thought he was Japanese um, because they were angry automobile workers who were angry at the Japanese for taking all their jobs. Um, he was Chinese, but that didn't matter to them. They didn't stop to ask. Um, it's not new, um, this perpetual foreigner. And I think what's so insidious about, you know, this is how I know it's principalities, right? What's so insidious about the perpetual foreigner is that there is an offering of this alternative, which is called the model minority, which says like, oh, well, Asian Americans, they, they're the good minority. They work really hard. They never speak up and like complain and they just like put your head down, work hard, and they've succeeded. See? These are the good minorities. Well, what does good minority mean, right? Like that is saying something, right? White supremacy tries to pit Asian Americans against black and Latino communities. It tries to say like, oh, well, these are the ones you should follow. These are the ones you should, you know, do something with. Um, it's a very conditional acceptance, right? If we keep our heads down and work hard, taken away at any moment. So Asian Americans have been um, brought, basically brought in, and we talk about this in the book some, at length, so this is just like a little bit of stuff for you, but for brought in for labor. So Chinese Americans for the Transcontinental Railroad, but as soon as the railroad's done, and Californians, white Californians are saying, oh, there's too many Chinese people, we don't want any more. They, they actually passed a law, the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, to say we won't let any more Chinese people into the country. It's the, it's the only time the US has had a ethnically based exclusion law. And that's actually how Asians kind of got lumped into one thing, was basically, we will exclude you. <laughs> there was an Indian American, a Japanese American who tried to you know, took a case to the Supreme Court trying to say like, actually, 
I'm, I think I'm white. And they were like, nope, no, you're not. You're Asian. We're excluding you all. Um, so there's this exclusion. And then there's sort of this like trap door for model minority. But like, it's a trap, <laughs> right? Like, don't go there. Um, but unfortunately for many, you know, for many folks, that look, looks like the way to go because you avoid the pain of being a foreigner, or you try to avoid the pain of being a foreigner. My early experiences as a kid, you know, just tons of shame and sort of feeling like, oh, I don't belong here. Okay, I gotta figure out what will help me belong. And um, there's a sense of like, I'll, I'll work harder, be more useful, right? Um, keep our heads down and work hard. And that's not, that's not a way to live either, right? to not be able to be who we are, to not be able to speak up when racism is hurting us. Um, so that's why this passage for Asian Americans, for me as an Asian American woman, for many Asian Americans, the fact that God sees Hagar, sees all her struggles, knows her name, right? Many of us as Asian Americans have names from our own um, cultural background that are just butchered like all the time, you know? So. Uh, my kindergarten graduation, my middle name is Siying, which um, is my Chinese name. And I remember at kindergarten, like clear as day, my teacher read the name and it was Sabrina Zing Chan. And I was like, oh, that's not me, you know? But so God knows her name. Um, God knows our names. God knows like the liminality, the in-betweenness of being Asian and American, um, of trying to navigate our own cultures, our own backgrounds parents, all that stuff. Um, it's good news for me. It's good news for Asian Americans. Um, it's good news for any people, any person, right? That God knows your name. God knows you and your story. Um, but I think especially for marginalized people, um, like we see here for Hagar. God's love isn't impersonal or generic. When I'm speaking to Asian American young people, I say, you know, like three billion Asians in the world, God knows your name. Right? Not, you're not just, just one person out there that, like in the blur. Um, we are seen by God. Um, and being seen by God for Hagar, she names God, right? And then she does what God asks in this passage, which I have a lot of tension with. Why doesn't God just lift her out? Like, why doesn't the system get fixed? Why does it, like, I don't know. I want the messenger of God to take Hagar and, like, transfer her back to her people. You know, like, all this stuff. But that's not what happens. Um, she goes back, as God says. Um, so yeah, I want you to hang on to that, being seen by God, um, how much that means for Hagar, how much that means for Asian Americans, how much that means for marginalized people. That is good news. She goes back in Genesis 21, and um, she has a son, Ishmael. He grows up. You know, he's older, he's probably a teenager. And um, Sarai finally has her son, Isaac. And, and, you know, I think there's some run-in with the kids, and Sarai gets really mad and, like, wants to send her away. Right? So this time it's not Hagar running away. It's Sarai sending her away, right? And, and she, Abram says, like, yeah, do whatever you want, you know. So they send him away, and they're basically going to die, <laughs> Um, and God hears the boy's cries. And again, God's messenger comes and talks to her. And don't be afraid, right? Um, 
In this passage, we see, um, we see at the beginning in Genesis 16 that Hagar, the way the storyteller frames it, Hagar is, is more passive. She conceives, um, she sees, and she flees. But she, moved, she sort of takes act, she moves towards agency in Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. From the beginning, she's not named, right? But she moves towards agency. Sarai, we see she takes, she gives, she gives Hagar to Abram, and she afflicts, right? She's unkind. She's harsh um, to Hagar. Abraham takes, he gives Hagar to Sarai, and he sends her away. Hagar moves into agency. Later, she walks, she fills. At the end of the passage, it talks about how she finds a wife for her son. It's the only time in scripture a mom finds a wife for their kid, um, which I thought, I thought was kind of cool. Um, she moves towards agency. Um, her being seen by God allows her to move towards agency. And, you know, I think my co-authors and I have, have sensed some of that. Part of our writing together was trying to use our agency, use our voices. I, to be honest, I'm excited about the book releasing. I'm also nervous because I'm like, oh, I don't know what people are going to think. But it's like we got to try and use our agency, use our voice. We are seen by God, and we can use our voices. I want to spend a little time thinking about what kept Sarah and Abram from really seeing Hagar. Okay? I love the little litany I read at the beginning where it talked about, um, I might get this wrong, but folks who are coming with burdens and folks who are coming for a challenge or something like that. So the Hagar piece, right, God sees us, especially as marginalized peoples. Um, that may be like for those who are carrying a lot of burdens. For those who are ready for a challenge, and maybe even if you're not ready, feeling ready for a challenge, I, I want to just spend a little time thinking about Sarai and Abram. Um, because no matter who we are, no matter how marginalized one is, there's always places of... Um, that, that we aren't recognizing other, pe other people's marginalization. Does that make sense? So as I look at this passage, I identify with Hagar, but I can also see myself as Sarai. Maybe not Abram as much, but Sarai. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Um, so certainly symptoms of uh, systems of oppression and slavery are at play here, right? So they've had not great interactions in Egypt, perhaps, like symptoms of ethnic prejudice, Right, Abram and Sarai have had their own interactions with the Pharaoh of Egypt before. And especially, this is why I think especially I, I connect more with Sarai. Sarai has her own trauma, right? She's been dealing with infertility. She is, does not have a lot of agency. Um, she's probably been praying for a long time to have kids. Hasn't happened, you know? Um, deep pain is happening there. Um, and Abram... You know, I think he's probably trying to survive self-preservation. Um, he's trying to figure out how to, like, take these people through the desert, you know, like, well, I think I heard God, and I don't know, I'm kind of freaked out about it, and how do we do this? Um, our own pain can often keep us from seeing other people's humanity, right? So, you know. We can get caught up in our own. So I'm not saying ignore your pain. I'm not saying stuff your pain and like don't deal with it. I'm saying bring your pain to God. Go to therapy. Pray. Talk to friends. Like get healing. Um, that's part of, and part of healing is learning to see um, others as well, right? Because when we're self-centered 
totally on our own pain, then we ignore others around us and what's, what's needed. Um, so, you know, I say that with some caveat, right? That, that comes and goes in seasons. Maybe you're in a, so I wanna just say that, if you're in a season of deep pain and trying to heal, like, dude, do that. Like, just, it's okay to focus on yourself, right? So I just wanna say that, I don't want you to hear me wrong. Um, but I also wanna say our healing is not just for our own sake, right? Our healing is for the sake of the world, right? That's, Abram and Sarah were called to be a blessing to the nations. They are not being a blessing to the nations right now, right? They're trying to figure out, okay, we got to be a blessing to the nations, so we got to have kids. I mean, that is part of what God said. So we got to figure out how to make this happen. But when they were doing that, they were treating, Sarah, uh, treating Hagar as an object and not as a subject. I think that's a real challenge for the church today, for the West, for the church, is seeing people's humanity, um, seeing people not as a means to an end, um, Engaging with people as a subject and not an object. So, you know, if I was speaking to a mostly Asian American audience, I would talk about uh, colorism. I would talk about East Asian centricity. So um, sometimes in Asian American community, we can have an East Asian dominant narrative. I would talk about uh, model minority and the ways we're pitted against other communities. Y'all are not a mostly Asian American audience, so I'm not gonna go there. Um, but I will say this, so what's the real inheritance here, right? So God had called them to be a blessing to the nations, had said you're gonna have a lot of kids, you're gonna take you to this land. I mean, those are all real for Abram. I think for us, the real inheritance is relationship with God and others, shalom, right? So just systems, just relationships, um, just relationship with God. And so when we don't see people, when we treat them as a means to an end, as an object and not as, and we can do that even with the best of intentions. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, we can be thinking about a system, I've done this, right? Be thinking about a system and trying to, um, trying to solve a problem or whatever it is, a broader system. But in the midst of that, I, I think we can tend to overlook the people we are ostensibly trying to help, right? So, so what does that mean? Like, how do, what do we do with that? And I think my invitation to you, I just have a couple little invitations for you as we wrap up. I think there's an invitation to learn, right? Um, I did write a book called Learning Our Names with my friends. Um, you know, even within the Asian American community, like I said, I have to continue to work to steward the privileges I have, um, whether that's class, education, socioeconomic. Um, I'm Chinese, that's a dominant group in Asian America historically. I need to ask for help with my blind spots. So an invitation to learn, um, an invitation to engage people as subjects and not objects. Um, and that may slow things down. That may really slow things down. Um, we kind of have an obsession with efficiency and I say we just in general, like the West um, and everything being on time and like all the like, the project needs to, I'm, I'm talking to myself too now, okay, so don't. Um, project has to come in and I gotta write this report and I gotta show that I'm doing something. I gotta have something to say, you know. But engaging people as subjects, um, not objects, as people in the story that are named and seen, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a thing, right? 
And how do you do that? You know, I was like thinking through, I was like, oh, you know, that's like a whole nother seminar or something, you know? But I think what I wanted to offer y'all to start with is to just continue to, I think y'all probably doing this, but ask God to help us see as God sees. Um, I think there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's got to be a desire to want to see as God sees, but also just an invitation. I think spirit will lead, you know? There's going to need to be intentionality. There's going to need to be, like, how-to steps and, like, all that stuff. But at the, at, the, at the root of it, I think, is inviting God to help us see as God sees and to be okay with what that might mean, right? The openness to, oh, things might slow down. Oh, it might get really complex. Oh, I might have to apologize a lot. Y'all, I have to apologize a lot. You know, when you're talking about race, when you're talking about ethnicity, when you're talking about culture, when you're talking about blind spots, um, it's, it's complicated. There's complex systems at work in our country that have been working for a very long time. Principalities, like I said, right? Um, sometimes when we gather Asian Americans together in different settings, um, there's this feeling of like, is this okay for us to gather? Am I Asian American enough? This happens in my organization. And I like to call it out. I like to say, hey, some of that is yes, we could do better at being inclusive. I totally own that. And Asians in America have always been excluded. Like that's our story. And so some of what you're feeling is a principality and something and a, and a system that we need to continue to work against. Um, so just to say, there are complex systems. I love, uh, I've been, you know, it's fun to get to meet y'all in person a little bit. I've been following y'all on Instagram a little bit, you know, and, you know, online, whatever, whatever. You, you learn some things, but I love the ways y'all are trying to engage the community. Um, I love the ways you're trying to engage Richmond. Um, and I just, I just want to, um, as I wrap up here, I want to invite the, the worship team to come up. But I want to pray a blessing for y'all um, that, y- that you would continue to um, engage people as subjects and not objects and continue to ask God to help you see um, as God sees. So, yeah, let me just pray for y'all real quick. Thank you, God, that you are the God who sees. You see Hagar. You see each of us. You see our marginalized identities. You see our more dominant identities, privileged identities. You see the complex intersection of all these different things. Um, You see the injustices in our city, in our country, in our world. Yeah, God, I pray for us gathered here today that you continue to help us resist the temptation to see people as objects, as a means to an end, that you would help us to see as you see, Lord. Spirit, would you lead and guide? Would you help us to see as you see um, and take action in response, whatever that looks like, God? We recognize it might be inconvenient. It might take longer. We might look dumb. We might look stupid as, as, and have to apologize, God, but... Um, We invite you to help us to see how you see. Thank you for the story of Hagar and Sarai and Abram. Would you bring from this and continue to remind us of what it is you want to invite us to? We love you, God. We trust you. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.